Oh, and the, and the really, the handout does? You can change that. It's Second Peter, okay? Let's stand, and we'll read this together. You can't read that up there, I can tell. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to the life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he, has, that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> so the question today is, what does it mean to grow in Christ? What does it look like? How do I do it? How do man's attempts at growth in Christ fall short? Does God give practical counsel and speak to the issues I am facing? How does a church create a context for effective growth and transformation in Christ? I think as Christians, we know we are supposed to grow. But I think sometimes we just don't know exactly how. Now, I'm not saying that we're all ignorant, that we're doofuses, um, that you know, we're somehow you know, uh, without any brains at all. But I think at times we can find ourselves getting discouraged because we're wondering whether we're doing this the right way. I would also say this. How, how, do, we, how do we make sense of all these growth texts in Scripture. Because the subject of growing in Christ um, comes to us in, in so many different ways and in so many different places, and the language often is different. I'm just going to read through the texts that are up here on the screen. And as I read through, I just want you to kind of think through the words that are being used to describe what it means to grow um, or what that person who is growing looks like. Psalm 1-3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. 2 Corinthians 3-18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Then we go to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4.7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Philippians 2.12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Colossians 1.28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all um, his energy that he powerfully works within me. So those, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a few that I've taken that contain language of growth. Now, what are some of the words or ideas that, that really describe the person, the practices, or the, the process of growth in these texts? They're not going to be on the screen, but just listen as I, as I list them off. Planted and prospering. So a person who's growing is planted and they're prospering. They're bearing fruit. They are being transformed into the same image. That would be the image of Christ. They are sanctified by the truth. And the Apostle Paul is talking about and speaking to believers, praying that they would continue to be sanctified. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. Some translations that would say, exercise yourself for godliness. Paul in Philippians says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, Paul in and Timothy there says, training in righteousness. So the Word of God is, is helpful, is beneficial, is profitable for training in righteousness. And then as we read Colossians there, maturity in Christ, completeness in Christ. Even the word being perfect, not in the sense of being, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you, but you've reached a, you've reached a level of, of completeness is the idea now, see, these are all different words that are describing this process, this person, what this growth in Christ actually looks like. And so sometimes, you know, we use different words, but ultimately we're talking about the same thing, okay? So with that in mind, I want to answer maybe a couple of questions that you probably are thinking, and I, 
address it a little bit earlier as I was introducing things, but why this series? Why, why take the time um, out of studying the Gospel of John to speak on this topic? Now, that's a good question, and I want to answer it carefully and purposely, and so I will in just a minute. You might be saying to yourself, haven't we heard teaching on growing in Christ each week as we're studying through the, the Gospel of John? And what's the answer? Absolutely. You have heard, but it's been by means of application typically. So we're in a particular passage, and maybe there's a certain theme there, and, and as we're talking about that theme or that image, I am bringing to bear what that looks like and applying it and saying this is what the gospel is, and this is what the gospel looks like, and this is how it's applied, and it's there, but it may not be completely understood because it's simply by means of application as opposed to here is what the topic is. The third um, question you might be asking is, you know, do you think that we are not growing in Christ? Is that the reason for this? Is there a crisis that you are trying to address with this series? Well, no, I'm not, I'm not making a statement about our church that we're not growing in Christ. I'm not attempting to address a specific crisis in our church at all. But I am saying that as God's children, we do need to make growth in Christ a priority. And if we don't, then we are in for a crisis. This is what we are called to do in so many different ways, using so many different kinds of language. So here is my rationale for the series. Number one, um, we need God to give us clarity in the milieu of confusion that plagues Christian culture. And friends, there is confusion about growth in Christ, about how the gospel relates to life, about how God speaks to our particular situations. There is great confusion. Let me just take a little bit of time here and give you some examples. And, and I'm going to you know, share some, some names here, and I'm going to give what they're saying. And you may not like it. I'm just telling you what is there. A lot of what you hear on the radio, Christian radio, a lot of what you read in books, books that will be Christian books, is going to be confusion on this subject. And here's one radio uh, talk show host um, who said this, I tried the standard Christian answers, in parentheses, what he's talking about is dealing with sin, faith, obedience, time in the word, prayer, and those things. I tried the standard Christian answers for myself and others, and I came to the same conclusions that Job reached. They are worthless medicine. That's Henry Cloud. From a self-esteem movement a few years ago, which, friends, still undergirds much of today's psychological ideology, one well-known author and Christian radio host begins his book, Hide or Seek, with a description of the life of Lee, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who shot and assassinated President Kennedy, his conclusion. Although Oswald is not excused from his behavior, the reason he turned to anger in such a way was due to his lack of self-esteem. No mention of sin. A Christian author writing about man's condition doesn't even bring up sin. A well-known pastor who used to be on television by the name of Robert Schuller known or is known for his unorthodox 
an unbiblical statement. Here it is. Man's greatest problem is not his sin. It is his low self-esteem. Now, friends, that's shocking to me. For someone to handle God's word and come to the conclusion that Pant's problem really isn't a sin, it's his low self-esteem. Are you opening up God's word and finding that there? Well, then you come to some Christian psychologists by the name of Frank Minereth and Paul Meyer who would state that a lack of self-worth is the basis of most psychological problems. And they would go on to say, the reason David could defeat Goliath, but Saul could not, is that David had good self-esteem, whereas Saul did not. I'm not making this up. And I'm not just trying to pick out obscure things to badmouth God. I'm just trying to show you from the milieu of stuff that's back there that there's great confusion. You want to tell me that the reason David fought Goliath is because he had better self-esteem than Saul? That is making Scripture say something that it does not say to simply fit into a system. And those are just a few examples, and there's probably more we could talk about. I just want to give reality to that, okay? Secondly, I want God, uh, or we need God to lay a solid biblical foundation that we can all see from Scripture. In other words, we want to see it there. And having seen it, we can agree on it. And then as a church family, having seen it and agreed on it, then we can live lives together based on that. We have the great privilege as God's children to have a standard revealed by God, preserved His Word. So we want the Word of God to shape our understanding. We want the Word of God to guide our process and our motivation We also need God to show us how growth in Christ is a personal matter that is the responsibility of the body of Christ. Seems kind of convoluted, doesn't it? Did you know that your growth in Christ is our responsibility? My growth in Christ is our responsibility. But we're living in America where there's very little our. There's far more my but God's created the body of Christ. And that body is a corporate unit that helps fashion and shape those that are part of that body. And we also need God then to teach us how we can help one another pursue Christ-likeness in the day-to-day churches of living life. I think sometimes we agree. It's like, you know, we sang the song here today, you know, knowing you. Or we come to pastors like exercising yourself to godliness. We we might have the words out there say, yeah, we agree on those. But in the specifics of the day-to-day life, do we have a paradigm? Do we have an understanding? Do we we recognize that the the corporate responsibility that we have to help one another in the day-to-day life issues as we grow in our walk with God? Now, friends, those are are important realities because life is full of all sorts of difficulties and struggles. Now, it seems like I'm going to be jumping in a completely different direction, but I'm not Um, because I want to talk now about another word, a word that sometimes is misunderstood. It's the word counseling. So where did that come from? Well, I want you to think about this word. What is counseling? When you hear the word counseling, what do you think of? 
you might think of a trained professional meeting with an individual or a couple. Emphasis there is trained professional. You might think of an expert who is well-versed in technical language and theories. And they can claim to provide a unique insight into people, a unique power to help people change. But it's the experts. It's those, those people who are trained professionals. You typically, typically, if you looked at the uh, corporate America as far as the church is concerned, you, you wouldn't typically think of the church being a place where struggling people can get lasting help. We've kind of handed that over to the institutions. So, here at Gateway, we believe that because of the gospel, the church is the best place to address the problems counseling is seeking to address. Where do people usually turn when they are faced with a problem? Marriage issues, parenting issues, children issues, fear and anxiety, depression, substance abuse, finances, pornography, bulimia, on and on and on. Well, those don't fit typically in the spiritual category, so we're going to go outside the church to find answers for them. And part of that is because we, we don't recognize that this growth in Christ speaks to those situations. Okay? So, Number one, what we need to recognize here is this. We are all counselors. Everyone in this room is a counselor. Everyone in this room gives advice to people who ask them about maybe a problem they have. If you've ever gone to Starbucks and you sat down in Starbucks with a friend and you got coffee, probably part of your discussion, maybe unless you're guys and you just sit there and look at each other, right? Um, you're probably interacting. Somewhere along the way, someone is giving advice to another person. You are counseling. We just don't call it that because we think of counseling as being this kind of big top-tier thing. But you are counseling. We all counsel. Some of you counseled this morning as you were interacting. We are all counseling. The, the, the key question here is what is the counsel that you are giving? So, we're all counselors, therefore, what kind of counsel are we going to give? And where do we get that kind of counsel? Where do we get the wisdom and the understanding for the right kind of counsel? Now, there's a lot of different definitions of, of, uh, of counseling. You might want to say biblical counseling, but I want to keep it very, very um, kind of bird's eye view here and give a very, very simple definition, okay? Counseling basically is this, making wise application of the gospel to the lives of people. Very simple, all right? With God's help, taking the gospel and applying it to people and their lives where they live in all, all circumstances, all right? That's very, very general. I recognize that. And it might even be a little bit nebulous because what do we mean by gospel, okay? Well, we're going to get to that. Now, if that is a true definition, a helpful definition, then we are talking about what we as the church are called to do. And if that is what the church is called to do, not just those in leadership, and you are part of the church, then it is what you and I are called to be doing. So when you're sitting at Starbucks across the table from someone who is a part of Gateway, or you're sitting in their home, or maybe you're at a home group or something like that, there is counsel that is going on. What kind of counsel is it going to be? Well, hopefully it's applying the gospel to the situations in life. Now in 
Counseling 101, you might well say Biblical Counseling 101, here is a truth that we always begin with, all right? The best counselor is first and foremost a good counselee. If you are going to counsel, that means you have to be willing to apply the gospel to yourself first. That make sense? You've got to be able to say, this is what God's Word says, this is what I want. It's that same principle as in Matthew 5, um, 1 through 7, you know, don't, you know, don't take the speck out of someone else's eye you know, before you do what? You take the beam out of your own eye, or is it Matthew 7, one of those, one of those two passages, right? But the, the idea there is you've got to take care of your own self. By the way, in that passage, it says that once you've taken it out, the idea is then you can, all right? A little side note there. Right? The point is, you've got, to, you've got to apply it to yourself first. So a good counselor is doing that, saying, oh, God, I need this before I'm going to go help others. And friends, so I, 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 I want to make this case, and this is a case that David Pallison makes. It's the case that many in the biblical counseling realm make, and that is this, that counseling is the church. This is what the church does. Now, if we think of counseling in its formal sense, you know, calling, making an appointment, setting up a time, meeting with that person, going through, you know, eight to ten weeks of formal counseling, and that that's certainly a, a viable, legitimate part of church life. But most of the counseling, friends, takes place casually as the body of Christ is interacting. And maybe we are afraid to recognize that that's what God is calling us to do to help one another, to counsel one another, to help nurture one another, to be more like Christ. So growing together in the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God is our pursuit. Now let's turn to our text this morning. Um, we've already read it. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to take a bird's eye view of it, okay? Let's just pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity of talking about what it means to grow in you. And Lord, help us gather all these things that we have just looked at to kind of set the stage and allow it, Lord, to give us a, a kind of foundation to, to, to bubble with, Lord, just to see what it is that you want to, to show us about what it means to grow in you. And Lord, may you use me, Lord, just simply as your mouthpiece. May we be able to relate your truth Lord, in such a way that it will be received and, and understood and, Lord, be practical and helpful, Lord, so that we can truly grow uh, in our walk with you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Now, I am, want us to turn, and we're just going to take a bird's eye view at this particular passage, okay? That would be 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Um, we are going to read it again, but we're going to read it kind of in portions there as we go through it. But this passage is divided into four parts. The first three parts um, really being kind of a, a, a declaration followed by a, a warning or an urging, okay? So let me give you what the first part is. The, the first section, verses 3 um, through verse 4, that, uh, these, these are the benefits that we have in Christ. So just, just think about um, what is being said here. His divine power has granted, what's another word for granted? Given, okay, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted, again, given to us his precious and very great promises so that through them 
you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, a few observations here just about what we just read. We have been given his power, his promises, and have become partakers of the divine nature. My friends, just, just settle and think about those things. Because of his power, we have his promises. And we are united to Christ. It's a pretty powerful reality. Secondly, we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is an exhaustive statement. We've been given all that we need to live in this life and to pursue, pursue godliness, to pursue Christ-likeness, to grow in Christ. Thirdly, God has called us to his own glory and excellence. He's called us to his own glory and his excellence. Fourth, we can escape the corruption that is in the world that would be sinful desires. Now, we've been taken out of it by virtue of our salvation, but we still are in the world, and there is still the corruption that is present there, and we are now, um, because of all these benefits, uh, able to face this world even though it is corrupt and even though there are sinful desires that are there. Well, how do you go about doing it? Now, verse 5, I'm calling this the growth that we make in Christ. The growth that we make in Christ. In this or for this very reason, based on what we just said, based on these benefits, make every effort to supplement or add to your faith virtue, the virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So the foundation of our growth is the benefits that we have in Christ, described as our faith. Okay, just logically working us through here. It's reaching back to those verses. The power, the promises, the partnership um, in the nature of God there is the basis now for our ability to grow. All right? Secondly there, we are to make every effort to supplement. So there is a responsibility on us to work, to toil, to make this a personal goal and endeavor. Right? To build upon. The idea of supplement is to build upon. In other words, something beyond initial faith is required. All right? So the benefits we have in Christ, the growth we, we make in Christ, and then the third thing here is this, the fruit that results. So if you, if you listen to what he's saying here, um, you are going to bear a certain kind of fruit. If you don't, you're going to bear another kind of fruit. And he approaches it really from the negative here, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now hear this. This passage is not talking about someone who's an unbeliever or someone who was a believer who has become an unbeliever. This passage is talking about someone who is a believer who truly came to, to, to the, the knowledge of Christ and embraced him as Lord and Savior, but has not been growing in him. And one of the results of that, which is that there really are three results of that in this particular passage. 
cleansed believers run the risk of being, first of all, ineffective. As opposed to being effective or to saying, this actually works. The reason you might say, hey, things aren't working right now may be because of the fact that you are not doing what God is calling you to do in your growth toward Christ-likeness. What you're doing is ineffective. It is unfruitful. It is not bearing fruit. It is not reproducing. The final thing here is this person is blind. They're actually nearsighted. Notice what the text says. He is so nearsighted that he is blind. Not saying that this person is blind like an unbeliever. This person is blind enough that they can't see anymore to the point they've forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So the positive of that is if you are doing these things, you are gaining sight, you are gaining discernment, you have the ability to see, you are bearing fruit, you are being effective. And so the warning now, or the urging, might be a better word here, is this. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, going back here to um, to verse, um, verse 5, make every effort, the same idea that be more and more diligent to confirm the, your calling and election. In other words, this is saying go back to that point of salvation, your calling or your election is talking about that regeneration, that time when you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. Go back and visit. Be sure that that's what took place and having certainty on that, if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Check and find out whether or not this is what you're doing. Are you adding? Are you growing? Is there fruit? Is there effectiveness? Is there discernment? Is there sight? For in this way, you will be richly provided for an entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election is Peter's way of saying this. Be sure to pursue your growth in Christ. Now, friends, this is why I'm calling this blind theology. There is a blindness that we can have in our growth in Christ that we can't even see. That's what's going on here. We can get to the place that we we don't realize that we're no longer growing in Christ. So how do we begin to actually grow? How do we, from this passage, and, or we can say just putting all these thoughts together, all the thoughts we had at the beginning from this passage, how do we begin to do this? And here's the big picture that I would like for us to, to consider. We want to connect the riches of Christ to the realities of life. The riches of Christ to the realities of life. You say, wow, what is that talking about? Well, This is where our understanding of, of the gospel comes in. What are the riches in Christ? First of all, I want you to notice <clears throat> the riches of Christ, really there's, there's two aspects to it. There is the once for all sanctification. What's another word for sanctification? Set up, being set apart. Another word we use is the word holy. Okay? At the point where you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, You were set apart as one of God's children. You were set apart into Christ, into his family. You were set apart and declared holy. Okay? 
It was a once-for-all, you might want to say, event. It wasn't a process. It was a one-time thing, okay? So there's this once-for-all deliverance in Christ. And as we think about that once-for-all, we need to even look at that in two parts. This is talking about the good news. And this is what I was talking about. What is, what is the gospel that we're talking about? There's the good news of what happened to Christ. Well, as we were looking at the resurrection last week, what happened to Christ? You can look at it from a historic vantage point, right? That Jesus came to the earth. Jesus went to Jerusalem. Jesus um, was arrested. He was beaten. He was put on a cross. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. And we would say, that is the gospel, right? That is, might want to say, the narrow view of the gospel, not in the sense of bad, but in the sense of those are the events. Those are the facts of history of what took place. But there are some, might want to say, theological or spiritual things that took place by virtue of what Jesus did. Because of what, what Jesus did on the cross, he was at one point in time condemned um, uh, under, under sentence of condemnation, but because of what he ultimately did on the cross, he was given the verdict of con, uh, commendation. He was honored because of what he did. He was approved. He was declared righteous. He, he was justified, you might say. Okay? That's why that word justification is up there. He was also sanctified. Listen to Romans chapter 6. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That's his sanctification. See, I don't know that we, we spend time digging into some of these theological realities that are really foundational to our understanding of what it means to grow in Christ. The next thing here is this. His glorification, this would be 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he is there called the first fruit of the resurrection. He is the first one. He is the example. He is the one who demonstrates what this looks like. Look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is in, in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is what happened to Jesus. His justification, his sanctification, his glorification all took place because of his obedience of going to the cross. So we're talking about the gospel. One of the things we're talking about are the once-for-all deliverance in Christ that is fleshed out here by the good news of what happened to Christ, what he accomplished, what he did on the cross, and what happened to him. The second part here, then, is the good news, get this, the good news of what happened to us in Christ. Now, see, here's, here's sometimes where the confusion resides. It's not that when you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, somehow you and the Father now are reconciled together, independent of Jesus. You are reconciled to the Father because of Jesus. 
say, oh, well, I'm getting lost here. Just hear this. It's not that you are justified because of anything you have done. It's because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the one who clothes you with his righteousness. Jesus is the one who sanctifies you with his sanctification. He is the one then who promises your glorification based on his glorification. It's as if we're looking in a mirror and seeing what happened to Jesus and we are embracing that as our own. Our relationship to the Father always goes through the cross and through Jesus. And it's based on what he has done. So that we say that we are walking with Christ. Well, it is Christ in us now who is walking. There is this unity that's taking place. We are in him. He is in us. John language, right? It's not simply, well, he did that over there, and now I have this direct access to the Father. No, it all happens through Jesus. God the Father looks at us through Christ, and it's his righteousness, his sanctification, his glorification that is applied to us. Now, friends, this is why we talk about an alien righteousness, not these green men coming out of the sky and coming down, that kind of stuff. It's that it's not our righteousness that makes us righteous. It is the righteousness of Christ covering us that declares us righteous. Now, there's more to say on that, but we need to see this is part of the, the once-for-all reality of what took place with us, this deliverance we have in Christ. The second thing here, then, would be the present and continuing sanctification. So what started out with this declaration of righteousness, because it's Christ's righteousness, what started out then as justification also started out as our sanctification. Our process of growth in Christ began at that point of salvation. And we are on this journey called sanctification. So we call it progressive sanctification because it's ongoing. It will be finally realized when we are taken up into heaven I do believe in the rapture in that one option, or through death. When we are in the presence of the Lord, uh, we will be glorified, okay? So there's justification, there's sanctification, and there's glorification. We're just focusing on those three right now. Now, certainly, sin is always crouching at the door. It desires to have us. It desires to destroy us. But God wants us to open our eyes and see that the sin living in me has met its match with the one who is working within me. So you have sin that is in you, but you have Christ who is in you, the hope of glory. Your sin no longer has that ultimate power over you because you have Christ living in you. It's not you, it's Christ who is working through you to deal with that sin. So I don't lean on my own righteousness, on my own sanctification. I lean on his righteousness. And that's why we say you need to go back and you need to look to Christ and you need to see who he is. You need to see what he has done and you need to see who you are in Christ. And that will be next week. We talk about marriage. You are married to Christ. 
Romans 7, 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Philippians 2, 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. So we have this, these riches of Christ. And these riches of Christ then are just the, all these blessings, all these benefits, all these realities that come in this new life in Christ. And we could list off a whole bunch of different things there. You, you have an inheritance. You are adopted. You have a new family. All sorts of things are listed there as far as these, these um, riches in Christ. But then we have the realities of life. And the realities of life, um, I'll leave that up there for a second. The realities of life <coughs> um, are the multitude of divine mercies and the uh, the multitude of human miseries. We can call them the blessings and trials of life. The divine mercies, the blessings. What kind of things are we talking about there? Well, good health, joy, happiness, success, the ability to go to Yosemite and stand on top of El Capitan and look around and see God's beauty. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we, we have the great privilege of just absorbing all of that. That's a blessing. To be able to see a child when it's born. And just to, to see that child nurture and grow. To laugh together. To have fun. We could go on there. But there are also human miseries. Divine mercies and human miseries. There's disease, discouragement, death, despair, demons, and on and on we can talk about. But this calls us then to step out of the clouds of abstraction and into the trenches where the fight of faith is won or lost in the world of specifics. In other words, here I am trying to get through life, and I'm struggling with my own fear, I'm struggling with my own doubts, I'm struggling with, with anxiety, whatever it might be, and it's like, well, but I know the gospel. But you're experiencing real-life situations. So somehow the realities of life that are, that are very present, that are normal, are disconnected from the riches of Christ. Let's just think again about some of these realities of life. Anxiety, spells of despondency, people calling you on your phone all the time, disrupting dinner, toddlers who write on walls, binge eating, porn site surfing, men who flood with rage and toilets that overflow, run-of-the-mill stress, out-of-control spending, cancer that kills, words that cut like a knife, boredom, burnout, midlife crisis, obsessive-compulsive disorder, plus the disorder, uh, uh, or plus this disorder or that disorder, an unfaithful spouse, a strong-willed teen, a weak and dying parent, crabgrass, and the cranky neighbor next door, and you can go on and on and on. These, these are the place where the gospel needs shine. Now friends, I, I think at times we, we, we kind of compartmentalize things. We, we, we understand here's the gospel of Jesus Christ died on the cross and then here's this neighbor that's causing trouble because, you know, he's complaining that one of my trees is hanging over his yard or whatever, okay? And we, we don't connect that the gospel speaks to that. Or whatever it might be on the things that are just mundane in life, the gospel does, it does speak to it. So what we need to do then is we need to connect, we need to connect these, these 
realities of life to the riches of Christ. Now hear this. The Bible anticipates and makes proper sense of life in all its particulars. Have you ever read some stories in the Old Old Testament in particular? You're just like, why are you doing that? I I mean, I I, I did a men's retreat on the the person of Samson. And the whole time I'm just saying, Samson, you're a knucklehead. Why would you do that? Come on. The reason he's doing that is because he's a sinful human being. And he acts and behaves like a sinful human being acts. And guess what? I see myself in Samson. You understand that? And we we read stories like, oh, yeah, well, that was just them. Like, No, this is us. We struggle with these things too. The Bible anticipates and makes proper sense of life in all its particulars. It trains us to dig and to dig deeper and to dig fuller to identify either sin living in me or trials and temptations that I need to face, not avoid. So these are the realities of life. And friends, um, those realities need to be connected now to the riches of Christ. And this, friends, is where we struggle in our growth in Christ. So as we look at the riches of Christ and the realities of life, we see that there's a huge gap of understanding. Somehow we need to connect the two, but we're often in a place where we just don't know how. I'm not asking for a raise of hands. But I, I, I mean, I think I struggle with this. I know I struggle with this. Just, Lord, what, how do you want me to connect these two? How do you want me to apply this? And yet God has given us his word so that we can grow in our ability and our discernment and our understanding of how we do that. If we don't, we will be unfruitful, ineffective, and blind. Now, in our house, we have what is proverbially called the junk drawer. Anyone here have a junk drawer in their house? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I was just thinking through what was in our junk drawer um, last night as I was thinking through this particular point. And this, home, this morning I went home and I checked, and um, there's actually a lot more in our junk drawer than what I have listed here. But, we, of course, the junk drawer is there to, to put things carefully and lay them out nice and neatly so that we can use them in the future, right? So in our junk drawer, we have things like international plug adapters, right? I mean, wh- where do you put an international plug adapter, right? I mean, just think through that, right? Hooks for the fireplace mantle, door stoppers, mouse traps, string, glitter, a bouncy ball, old keys, a used light bulb, watercolor paintbrush and palette, a Christmas decoration, a bent, used air pump needle for pumping up soccer balls, right? Pliers and a Gideon Bible. Plus a whole bunch of other things that I didn't like. Now, that is somewhat what our answer drawer to the struggles of life looks like. That is somewhat what our life Life's reservoir looks like when we're trying to find solutions in the realities of life. Over the years, we've picked up so many ideologies, philosophies, habits, words of wisdom, 
wives' tales, cultural attitudes, common sense philosophies, religious certainties, and of course, the Gideon Bible, right? That searching for answers is like rummaging through this junk drawer for the right tool to solve our problem. So what happens often is that we turn to what we think will work. You know what it's like, you know, I've got a job to do and trying to find the right tool, and it's like, well, well, maybe this cassette case will help me as I twist this nut and I need to get it in place, right? Because I don't have a screwdriver handy, so I'm trying to find the closest to it, and it just doesn't, it, it might be able to get something done, but it's not the right tool. So we'd rather try what we think will work rather than turn to what we know God desires. Now, go back, go back if you would please, to the passage. This is just coming to me right now. Just I think it's helpful. Go back to that Second Peter passage. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in what? The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our knowledge about how we connect what he has done to the realities of life. Now friends, that is the burden here of the subject of growing in Christ. Not, you know, the, the end game is not just, hey, read your Bible, pray, and it's going to be happy. This is saying we need to take a serious look at our walk with God. We need to take a serious look at what it means to, to actually fill in this gap with some things that are truly going to drive us in the right direction. So how do we bridge the gap? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that there is a gap. And the first gap that is there is what we call a gospel gap. Now, this gospel gap is where uh, many Christians do not understand, and they don't necessarily pursue life change. And the reason that is true that believers know that Christ has done something in the past, they know that he is still going to do something in the future um, that will seal their hope, but they really don't practically know how to connect the riches of Christ to their present realities. And friends, I think, I think that's where many times we are. That doesn't mean that we could not recite the gospel story. But it's, it's an urge here to move beyond the gospel story and to see what the fuller gospel with all the benefits is and how it applies and how it, how it gives, gives wisdom and discernment to life situations. That's the gospel gap. Secondly, there is what I'm calling the ministry gap. And here the ministry gap um, as I've stated up there, is where we, we don't know practically how to help one another through intentionally redemptive relationships. We see, um, we see things like church as kind of like a formal gathering. Um, we see ministry as something formal. We don't necessarily see relationships as being intentional and redemptive. In other words, that if we're just getting together for lunch, if, I, if you're coming over to my house or I'm coming to your house for lunch on a Sunday or something like that, that part of what we're doing together, yeah, it's fellowshipping and enjoying one another, but it is also building into one another and urging one another in our growth toward Christ-likeness. It's intentional. It's purposeful. And that's what relationships in the body of Christ are to be like. That's what I'm saying. We all have a responsibility for your growth. And you have a responsibility for my growth. And how are we pushing one another to grow in Christ, to connect the riches of Christ to the realities of life? 
And at the center of a transformative community, a church that is committed to these things, will be Christians who, as a way of life, are learning to close both the gospel gap and the ministry gap. And I'm not saying I'm expecting everyone to have it solved and go out today and do it. I'm saying this is where we live with the gap. And so what does growth in Christ look like? It looks like this gap is coming, becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. We're learning more how to understand the gospel and see how it applies to where we live. We're learning more how we as fellow believers are to come alongside one another and to encourage and to help us in our growth toward Christ-likeness. Now, friends, it's critically important. If we don't, with all these blessings, all these benefits, we don't pursue this path that, that God has laid for us to, with diligence and every effort, to add to our faith or to supplement our faith, to grow in our faith, we run the risk, friends, of being ineffective, unfruitful, and being blind. And friends, there, there are too many people who name the name of Christ who, who do not connect the dots as far as what am I supposed to do with my life right now because they have no clue about how to grow in Christ. And I, I'm just saying, as a pastor, I've seen it many, many times. And my burden for us as a church family is that we will have a, a better and growing understanding of what that looks like. Not that we'll be perfect. And quite frankly, we should be having people that this is all new to, and we should be have, having people that are really moving along in maturity. Should be a, a group of people. But the idea is, as a church, we're saying, this is where God wants us to go. We don't just want to settle at that, that answer of, yeah, well, the gospel is Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Good answer, that is the narrow answer, but the full answer is the gospel is far more than that because of its implications, because of its benefits that come as a result of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. So this blind theology then we need to recognize is this. It is possible for Christians to get a place, get to a place in their spiritual walk where they don't know that they can't see. How do you know that you're in a place where you can't see? What has to happen? Well, either God convicts you, Holy Spirit breaks in, or someone else who is a part of the body of Christ who loves you comes alongside you and helps you and counsels you and moves you along. Not doesn't have to be formal counseling. Just coming alongside and say, listen, I know you're going through this trial. How, how are you approaching this? What are you doing? And they start, you start saying, well, I'm doing this, or you're doing this, and it's all junk drawer stuff. It's all ideologies and old stuff you pulled in. And you say, well, have you, have you considered what God says? Seriously considered. I don't mean just here's a verse of Scripture, memorize it and pray it, and there it is. It's... Seriously understand the gospel. Seriously understand who you are in Christ. Revisit that. Believe it. Embrace who you are in that. Allow God to speak to your situation through his truth. We, we desperately need to be a community that's, that's okay to do that. All right. Secondly here, um, we, we can't see God. Blind theology means we can't see God's purposes and when we can't see God's purposes, we turn to substitutes, and we suffer. You know, we think, well, I got 
this problem. I'm doing X, Y, and Z. Oh, okay. Well, who said you should do X, Y, and Z? Well, you know, I went to the hospital, or I went to this person, or I went to this conference, whatever. Okay, I'm not saying there's not, there's not you know, general revelation that can be helpful, but what does God want you to do? Have you considered, seriously, not just in token format, have you seriously considered what God wants you to do? And, and friends, oftentimes, the response is, well, I've considered it, but I don't want to do it. I don't think it'll work. I don't like what he says. There has to be another way. Oh, God doesn't speak to this. This is outside of the, what Scripture says. Friend, that, that's, that's blindness speaking. Someone who is not connecting the dots. Okay? So let me leave you with these thoughts then. All right? Practical things that we can do. These are very, very simple. Um, and this is not the answer to how you grow in Christ. This is what I'm asking you to do as we walk through these process, this, these, these series and the, these, this issue over the next few weeks. Pray. Pray for wisdom and insight. Um, pray that God would, just, would, would open the eyes of your heart and that you would not only see him, but you would see what it means to embrace him and to follow him and to, to learn from him and to be guided by him. All right? Secondly, study God's word. This is not something that I want us to simply say, well, here's a truth, and let's slap a verse on it and say it's true. We want God's word to be understood as it is revealed, to be mined in that way to help us to understand what God wants us to do. The third thing, read good books. I, I share with you a couple of those resources. Just allow yourself to be counseled and to be helped along as we go through this study together, okay, by reading some good books. Um, talk with godly believers. I just want to encourage you. Uh, we've encouraged you through you know, our announcement time, but if you haven't yet been a part of a home group, this is one of the arenas, the places where some of this stuff takes place. When you start saying, okay, we talked about this, but, but how does that actually work out in this situation? And how does it work out in this situation? You might even add to there. There, there are some resources out there that, that have case studies. Here's a person who's suffering with whatever it might be. And how does someone come alongside and help that person? You can talk with someone, just interact, and how would you do it, and, and how do you bring God's word into that context and help that person? And then finally, don't panic. <laughs> Growth is a process. I, I, I want us to be careful here. It's like, ah, I'm blind, I'm unfruitful, I'm ineffective. Oh, well. You know what? Growth is a process. I'm not expecting people just to kind of zap in their Christian maturity, but we want to keep heading in the right direction, okay? And you know what? You don't, when, when you're heading in the right direction in your Christian maturity, it's not a race to say, I got there first. <laughs> in fact, sometimes in your Christian maturity, the most mature thing you can do is to stop, turn around and say, hey, I want you to come. I want you to come. I want to help you walk. It's not to get to the line first and say, I got there first, you know, my husband. This is the, 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 the bumper sticker. My husband was an honor student, you know, in the, in the school of growth in Christ, okay? That's not the goal. The goal is to be doing what God has called us to do. And we may be at different places on that journey, but we want to encourage one another as we are on that journey together and to live that journey together and to help one another 
to identify how the gospel applies on that journey together. Lord, help us now as we contemplate these things. You have called us to grow in you. Lord, it's not, it's not some kind of demand that you're back there with a whip chasing us down. But Lord, it's, 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 a, it's a pleading that we would pursue all the benefits, Lord, that you have given us, that we would grow. And certainly there is a command there, Lord, to, to be holy because you are holy, to grow in our understanding of what holiness looks like. But Lord, we recognize that you haven't just said grow and left and abandon us. Lord, you've given us the tools. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us all these riches in Christ. So Lord, help us now as a church family and as individuals to, to begin to understand the gospel in its fuller sense and to connect the dots so that the gospel gap and the ministry gap, Lord, would be shrunken and we can be a, a church that is eager to see one another pursue Christ-likeness together. Now, Lord, as we contemplate the reason why we can have this, have this conversation today, Lord, uh, Lord, it's because of what you have accomplished on the cross. Lord, it's not just the event of the cross, but Lord, it is what you did on that cross. You hung there and you took upon yourself the sin of mankind. You bore your father's wrath. The punishment that we deserved, you received in our place. You suffered, you died, you shed your blood, and you did that for us. And today, Lord, we want to remember that. We want to be encouraged by it. We want to be strengthened by it. So Lord, help us today as we celebrate your Lord's table to remember the impact of what you did in your body and what you accomplished in the shedding of your blood. We ask this in your name. Amen. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to join.